Oscar Wilde once said, anyone can make history, only a great man can write it. Today, we'll look back on the life of one of the godfathers of modern optical lens design, French physicist, Augustin Jean Fresnel. Fresnel's invention is practical, has multiple applications, and almost 200 years after the man's passing, we're still utilizing his design. I'm Dan, and I'm asking you to grab your hoverboard, hop in our DeLorean, and let's go back in time on this episode of Through the Lens. As we were putting this episode together, I thought of some great biographical movies through time. Of course, everyone loved Oliver Stone's JFK, but thinking about that movie sent me down a rabbit hole of crazy movie conspiracies, some of which are just too good not to share. Here's one of my favorites. The great Ferris Bueller never actually existed. Ferris's best friend Cameron awakens ill, though his physical symptoms all but disappear once he's out and about and he intends to spend the day wishing that his mother never returns from Decatur. But if Cameron were a more audacious version of himself, what would he do? Start off by wearing a funky hat, maybe even a vest, then pick up his beautiful girlfriend and journey into the big city in a quarter million dollar automobile. Maybe go to Wrigley Park and catch a Cubs game, eat at Chez Louis, hit the museum, deceive authority, be bold, devilish, all the things that Cameron's afraid to do in real life. So Ferris becomes a creation of Cameron's imagination, and he uses this to finally assert himself against his father's cruelty, and more importantly, his own hypercritical conscience. I think the theory can go further though, in that Cameron never actually leaves his room, that everything is imagined, but that catharsis is real, which is Cameron egged on by Ferris's finally taking his rage out on the Ferrari and then accepting the consequences. We know, of course, that Ferris Bueller, grotesquely self-seeking, would never take the heat. So his false sincerity in offering this is just more fantastic bravado from an imaginary friend. There's so much more to look at, and it's fun to really do so. I don't think necessarily that John Hughes, the movie's director, did this intentionally, but maybe purposefully, maybe. So on this, one of the greatest teen movies of all time, you'll just know next time you watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it'll never be the same. I can't imagine that 1788 France was a calm and peaceful place to be born. A revolution was just on the horizon. There was unrest in the cities. But in a small town in Normandy, Augustin Jean Fresnel was born. Augustin was the second of four children in the Fresnel family and spent the early years of his life homeschooled alongside his brother. His mother instilled values of hard work, duty, and divinity, which aligned with their Jansenism-influenced Catholic faith. He was described as a sickly and quiet child, and because of this, they initially thought he might end up being a bit unremarkable. But he soon started to show some talent. It began with sticks being transformed into functional bows and arrows and ended with reports of him making guns that worked too well. He was, of course, nine at the time. 
His fascination with invention and design was truly ignited when he joined his brother at university. In his first year, he garnered praise and awards for his work in geometry. And despite his continued illness from childhood, he excelled in mathematics, design, and drawing. He may not have had a raucous and robust group of friends, but he did have the respect of his fellow students and teachers. Upon leaving school, he joined the Corps de Pont et Chaussée, an engineering group where he was an engineer in training. He remained connected to the Corps de Pont for the rest of his life in one way or another. One of his earliest assignments was in Neon, developing the highway between Spain and France. It was during this time that he became enamored with optics and optical science. Luckily for Fresnel, he would have ample opportunity for experimentation in the optical field as he was suspended for abandoning his post to join the resistance to Napoleon's return, which he called an attack on civilization. Perhaps a bit dramatic, but the French are nothing if not passionate. He spent the 100 days war at his mother's home, where he began his optical experiments. His days of optical experimentation were full of discovery, new theories, educational papers and articles. But there were black clouds on the horizon, something that no amount of hard work or religious duty could overcome. The sickly young boy became the sickly young man. Fresnel knew his time was limited, so he devoted himself completely to his work. He took no wife, no lover, and he turned away the temptations and pleasures that a life in France had to offer. His religious upbringing stayed with him throughout his life. He ardently believed that his knowledge and skills were a gift from God and they should not be wasted. His close friend and fellow engineer, Alphonse Delau, remarked that Fresnel relied deeply on a strength of soul, not because he feared death, but rather because he was afraid for the interruption of discovery his death would cause. By working himself to exhaustion, he ensured that his work would serve others. His health continued to decline, and in the winter of 1822, his doctors told him that if he wanted to live longer, he would need to scale back his work. I imagine that Fresnel took time to consider his next move upon hearing this news. On one hand, he knew that his time was not guaranteed, so he could try to cram more and more into it. On the other, if he stepped back and focused on just a few key things, perhaps he could develop them further. This part of the story reminds me of the musical Hamilton, when one of the recurring themes directed towards Alexander is, why do you write like you're running out of time? Fresnel was, in fact, running out of time, and he knew it. So he chose one project, his most important, his best opportunity to use the gifts given to him to serve others, the lighthouse. It would be his last project. Fresnel died in 1827 after a lifelong battle with tuberculosis. It seems only appropriate that a man born right before the onset of the French Revolution, a man who wanted to fight royalists, 
would pass away on July 14th, Bastille Day. The religious sect that he was raised under considered was considered heretical by the Roman Catholic Church, but after his death, the Catholic Encyclopedia did write a brief article about him where they described him as a deeply religious man and remarkable for his keen sense of duty. You've now met Fresnel the Man. After the break, I'll tell you all about The Lens and The Lighthouse. Cult movies are usually the source of a lot of different conspiracy theories. One of the biggest cult movies that uh, has happened in the past uh, maybe 20 years is Pulp Fiction. And one of the most important things in Pulp Fiction was a MacGuffin. A MacGuffin, for those who don't know, is an object that propels a story forward, but realistically has no bearing on the story whatsoever. Examples will be the rug in The Big Lebowski. It really tied the room together. The heart of the ocean necklace in Titanic. Or, as we're now discussing, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It could literally be anything, but it's what pushes the story along. What's made the briefcase so interesting is Pulp Fiction is that no one's really sure what it is. For the record, Quentin Tarantino has said that it's whatever the audience wants it to be. Of course, that hasn't stopped internet sleuths and conspiracy theorists from drawing huge conclusions and theories from a finite amount of information. The prevailing theory is that the briefcase is Marcellus Wallace's soul, and that he sold it to the devil in exchange for his prominence and success as a gangster. The evidence? The scar on the back of his head which is clearly visible throughout most of the film and is never addressed. This is where his soul was taken from him. Not only that, the combination on the briefcase was 666, the number of the devil. This theory came about seemingly because Chinese culture has it that the soul is removed from the back of the head. There was also rumbling that the novelization of the film claimed it was the soul as well. Of course, there was no novelization of Pulp Fiction, and we are unable to find any reference to souls being removed from the back of the head in Chinese culture, or any culture for that matter. Out goes that theory. For his part, though, Roger Avery, who has a story by credit in Pulp Fiction, addressed the soul theory in an interview with Roger Ebert back in 1997. He basically said that somebody had the bright idea, which he never agreed with, of putting an orange light bulb in the suitcase. Suddenly, what could have been anything in the suitcase became something supernatural. Let me start with a disclaimer. Fresnel did not invent the lighthouse, nor was he the first to have the idea to put a lens in said lighthouse. I'm going to go a step further and say he wasn't the first to suggest that traditional convex lenses should be replaced by a series of annular prisms put together to reduce the weight of the optic as well as enhance its performance to the lighthouse. I know what you're thinking, Kelly. You really talked this guy up. You made a big deal about him, and now you're telling me he didn't invent anything. Well, you'd be sort of correct. You see, in 1819, Fresnel was assigned to the Commission de Fares, the Commission of Lighthouses, in order to review potential improvements. 
he introduced his idea of lenses by steps to replace the reflectors that were currently in use. When he presented this idea to the commission, he was embarrassed to find out that this concept had already been conceived by a scientist named Count Buffon and that he had broken through an open door. But there were some key differences in the design, where Buffon's lens was biconvex and in a singular piece, Fresnel's design was a plano-convex and made of many prisms for the ease of construction. Despite going through an already open door, Fresnel designed impressed the commission, and he was given an extremely modest budget to have a prototype panel built. This 55-centimeter square lens included 97 polygonal prisms, and it was impressive enough to have the full eight-panel design built. A year later, the completed prototype was displayed in a public event next to the most cutting-edge reflectors on the market. Fresnel's design left them completely obsolete. But like Alexander Hamilton, Fresnel was never satisfied. We call that a callback. He continued to draw and redesign. His next lens was a rotating eight-panel bullseye lens. This allowed for a soft, sustained directional light to be paired with strong flashes with each turn. Fun fact, this rotating light was first tested on the Arc de Triomphe before hibernating for the winter. Fresnel supervised its installation in the spring of 1823, and on July 25th, the first Fresnel lighthouse lens was lit. As we already know, by this point his health was in a steady decline, but Fresnel didn't give up on innovation, advancement, and improvement. He noticed that while his lenses worked well to concentrate in direct light, that light was being lost in the reflecting elements. Fresnel proposed that the optical mirrors be swapped with a catadioptric prism. Light would then be able to travel via refraction through the first surface, then through internal reflection on the second surface, before finally refracting through the third surface. This is the lighthouse lens as we know it today. A small model was built in 1826 and used in the St. Martin Canal. Unfortunately, Fresnel did not live long enough to see the full-scale model. I know you want to hear more about Fresnel. Don't worry, I've got you. Stick around after a brief sponsor break for one more short story. Hey Through the Lens listeners! Are you in an optical bind with delayed response and long lead times? Well, why haven't you called NACL yet? The technical experts at North American Coding Laboratories are ready to help with your optical coding project. With over 46 years of optical experience, you can rest assured that your optics are in the best hands. From the UV to IR and dip applied to DLC, we've got you coded. Connect with the experts at NACL.com. That's NACL.com today. What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. And that right there, that's the Hamilton reference hat trick. Thanks, Lynn Manuel Miranda. 
I've only really touched on one of Fresnel's major accomplishments, but he did so much more in the realm of research, physics, and optical science. His work included publications on diffraction, polarization of lenses, and double reflection. He won awards for his work and his contributions to the optical science community, some of them well after his death. But nothing was quite like the impact of his lighthouse lenses. Within a century of that first presentation, you know, the one where he broke through an already open door, more than 10,000 Fresnel lenses were installed in lighthouses around the world. These lenses helped keep ships safe and opened whatever city, port, or region they were in to a whole new world of economic development. Fresnel lenses are now made out of many materials, including lightweight plastics. While they remain in the lighthouse, you may find them closer to home. Fresnel lenses have been used in overhead projectors, handheld magnifiers, and even in your camera. Augustin Jean Fresnel's life mission was to use his knowledge to help and serve people. It was his duty, his calling, and his obligation in reparation for the gifts he was given. The Fresnel lenses are beautiful works of art that have protected ships for centuries, protecting economies and enhancing the quality of life. The Greek poet Homer wrote that Helen of Troy had a face that could launch a thousand ships. Well, Fresnel created a lens that saved a million. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode where we've discussed the Fresnel lens and the life of Fresnel and talked a little bit about his invention that has been called the invention that saved a million ships. To tie that together with some of the things we've been talking about as our sidebars for uh, different movie conspiracy theories, here's a great one to go out on. The movie Titanic is secretly a sequel to the Terminator movies. Starting with his knowledge of Lake Winnesota and the Santa Monica coaster, two things yet to exist when the film takes place, there's a lot of believable evidence that not only is Jack a time traveler, but one specifically there to make sure the Titanic sinks. After all, had Rose jumped, they may have spent a crucial day looking for her body. But why stop there? As an extension of this theory goes, he's not only a time traveler, but he's a Terminator robot sent back in time to ensure Rose's survival, or perhaps the deaths of many. It would certainly explain his odd knowledge of where exactly they should go to survive the disaster. So that kind of wraps everything up nice and neatly. We hope you've enjoyed your time here on Through the Lens. <laughs>